We have been a series in the Psalms over the summer. We continue that today with Psalm 106. With Psalm 106. I'm just going to read. It's a very long psalm. I'm going to read just a section of it. So you want to get your Bibles out with me. That would be great. We're going to go through a lot of this today. Psalm 106. Here's the word of God. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed the words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Merciful Father, we ask that you would be with us. Every person in this room, whether they are two years old, whether they are 80 years old, whatever age they are, Lord, that you would come to us. You must speak to us. And we know that you will. You promise that you will give us understanding, that you will open the eyes of our hearts to see your grace, to see what you have for us. And then to help us walk in obedience and truth. Lord, to do that, we must understand who we are. Who we are apart from you. But who we are with you. Help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Friday night, my family and I went to see the Barbie movie. Don't judge me. I'm not recommending you see it, and I'm not going to wax philosophical for the next 10 minutes about what the movie means and doesn't mean. But I'm going to just say very one small, very thing about it, that the movie, I think, was about this question. What am I made for? What is my purpose? Why was I created? I didn't quite understand that until there was a point in the movie where this song comes up, a song I never had heard before, but it is a song by Billie Eilish. It's beautiful. This is what she sings. I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now. What was I made for? What was I made for? That, of course, is not just the question for movies and toys, and Hollywood. 
That is the question for all of us. And that is what Psalm 106, I think, is all about. But this is so, the psalm is difficult because it has us approach this question, what am I made for, by singing, by looking deeply at our sin. We are to comprehensively and extensively recount the sins of Israel. And then by virtue of that, the sins of our own hearts. So that we would remember, so that we would know deeply this one thing. We are made for grace. We are made for grace. We have a lot of work to do this morning, so we're going to get right to it. First point. We first are created to do what is right. We are created to do what is right. Psalm 106.1 says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm sure you've heard that from the Psalms before. Opens like so many others. God is good. God is loving. He never changes. But he is so good. He's so loving. He is so holy that he is not comprehensible. He is incomprehensible. Psalm 106.2, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Now, on the one hand, as children of God, we are made in his image. We are made in his image. And so we are like him in a lot of ways. But we are also not like him. We must understand that God is set apart, infinitely set apart from his people, from his creation. He is perfect and powerful. So when it says, who can declare all his praise? The implied answer is, of course, that no one really can. No one can ever reach with their praise the magnitude of God's greatness and mercy and might. But there is no good reason not to try. What will our response be to the infinite love and goodness of God? What will your response be? There are all sorts of things that demand praise in our life, right? When I drink a pumpkin spice latte in October, it demands my praise. I'm sorry, it just does. When I receive the love and forgiveness of my wife, when I do not deserve it, it demands praise. Every summer back in the States, we would spend a week in upstate New York, far away from civilization, far away from the city's lights. And I would intentionally schedule our time so that we would be there when there was a black moon, when the moon was the dimmest. And I did that because without the light of the moon or the light of the cities, we could see the night sky. We could see it. We don't usually see it, but just for that week, we would see it in all its glory. The stars, the planets, the Milky Way galaxy poured out across the sky. It is beautiful and massive. And anyone who sees it, they see it and they have awe and they have praise. How much more with God? How much more with the Lord of hosts? But we do not just praise with our hearts or with singing. In our response to the infinite majesty of God, 
The psalm says that we must live upright and holy lives. That is how we praise with everything that we are. Verse 3, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. In other words, God's justice and righteousness demands that we live justly and rightly. I'll say it again. God's justice and righteousness, that is his character. It demands that we, as his created children, live justly and righteously. We are created in his image, and so we are created to be like him in thought and word and in deed. Now, some people hear that, especially if they don't go to church very often or or at all. And they say, well, that's terrible. That does not sound good at all. It sounds actually like God is just this vain person seeking praise. But look at verse 3 again. It says, blessed are they. Maybe you heard that in Psalm f- or in uh, Matthew 5. We call those the Beatitudes. And that is because the Beatitude means it's a promise of happiness. A promise of happiness and joy. We can actually translate this. Happy are they who. And so this leads to an incredible truth. When God demands our justice and righteousness, he is demanding our happiness. By responding to God with our goodness, peace, patience, kindness, love, self-control, faithfulness, we do what we were always meant to do. We were created to praise by doing what is right. When we were kids, we loved to take random things out in nature or the things from the garage and use them to imagine a different world. One of the things that we would always do in the summertime was flip our bikes over and act like they were ice cream machines. We would crank the pedals over and we would tape a baseball card or a, or a playing card to one of the forks. And as we, would, as we would crank the pedal, that little card would fly through the spokes and would make such a wonderful sound. It was so much fun. But of course, it was only fun, right? It was only fun. It was not reality. Bikes can't make ice cream. No matter how hard we cranked that wheel or how much we wished for velvety, smooth, and creamy vanilla goodness, nothing poured out of those spokes. Bikes are not made to make ice cream. What are bikes for? They're made to be ridden. In the same way, we must ask ourselves the question, what are we made for? What are we made to do? The Bible teaches that we are made to glorify God. We are to glorify God with our heart and soul and mind. And we do so in part by doing what is right and good. Look at verse 5. That I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. That I may glory in your inheritance. Friends, is your life a reflection of the goodness of God? Do you give yourself to the demand of God that you be happy? That you be happy in holiness, justice, love, and righteousness? The first point this morning is that we are created to do what is right. But two, we do not do what is right. 
We do not do what is right. We are made to be happy in God. But just as the psalmist sings that, he throws cold water on it. We do not do what we are created to do. 106.6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. <laughs> Three words to describe our failure. Could he have been more thorough? Comprehensive evil, comprehensive de depravity, sin, iniquity, wickedness. The reality is though we are made for goodness, we choose badness. We choose evil. Now the Bible says that the essence of sin is the rejection of God. That is what our forefathers and foremother did, Adam and Eve. They rejected who he was. They rejected how he had made them and what he had made them for. And so the psalmist goes into this to help us remember. We must remember what we have done, how we have rejected God, and how we continue to. Now, there are eight ways. There are eight different sins listed here, and we're going to go through every single one of them. Open your heart. Listen to this. First, they failed to believe God. The Israelites failed to believe God. Psalm 106, 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So the people of God have been freed by the Israelites, and they're on the run. Pharaoh is after them, and then they hit this sea, and they immediately lose all faith. They immediately lose all faith. They cry out in anger and unbelief. Exodus 14, 12 says, It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Think about what they had just seen. The Israelites had been freed. They had been emancipated by the most awe-inspiring miracles of God after 400 years under oppression. How quickly we forget. God cannot deal with the sea. How does this describe us? Do we forget how God has been faithful to us? Are we stopped up by anxiety and depression and despair when a new problem comes into our life? They failed to believe God too. They were unsatisfied with God. Unsatisfied with God. Psalm 106, 13 to 14. When they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. Okay, so they're saved, right? Out of oppression, out, of the, out from under the hand of the Pharaoh. But they are sent out into the wilderness. So they're, not, they're no longer enslaved, but now they're out in the wilderness, living on the land. And they were unhappy. <laughs> How quickly they were unhappy. Their hunger told them God must not be providing. Friends, the God who saved them would not allow them to die in the desert. He would always care for them. Even if he would occasionally allow hardship and suffering and sometimes give it, he always gave them exactly what they needed to survive and thrive. But of course, the Israelites had a different idea about surviving and especially thriving was they wanted more. They wanted it on their terms. Their sin was that they failed to be satisfied in God alone. Are you satisfied with the life that God has given you? 
Three, they were jealous of others. They were jealous of others. Psalm 106, 16. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abram. Another form of dissatisfaction, right? Believing that we should have the life of someone else. They saw Moses and Aaron and how God had used them. So they were envious of their, their, of their power, their prestige, their connection to God. They wanted that. They wanted the power and prestige. They wanted more accolades. What was needed was not to be content with what God gave to them. What they needed was to be content in what God gave to them. But what they said in response was, not good enough. I want what they have over there. Does that describe you? <laughs> Does me. In comparison to others, is God good enough for us? Four, they worshiped other gods. They worshiped other gods. Psalm 106, 19 through 20. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. What do you do when God has failed you? What do you do? When you believe that God has failed you, when you believe that you should have a happier, healthier life, more wealthy life, you make your own gods. You make it for yourself what you want. When Moses was up on the mountain, they became impatient, the people. They and outsprung this terrible golden calf, and they danced around it, and they made offerings to it. Now, we might think that's just crazy. We would never do something like that. But friends, idolatry, this is what this is. Idolatry is not just worshiping physical idols. There's also mental and spiritual ones. Idolatry in the end is giving yourself to anything other than God. It is making something that God has given us and putting it above him. What have you given yourself to? Five, they did not take hold of God's gift. They did not take hold of God's gift. Psalm 106. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. This is talking about when the 12 spies were sent to see the land so that they could know how to go and take it. But the second they get there and they come back, most of them say essentially, nope, not going to work. There is no way we will be able to move into this land. It is far too dangerous. And what do the people do? They believe him. They did not believe God enough to say, we will trust the Lord. He has brought us this far. There's no way that he would promise this and not take us there. It is a, it is, it is a gift that seems too good to be true, they said. What does God want you to take hold of that you are refusing? What gift of God has he laid before you that you think is too crazy or too scary? Maybe a new career. Maybe a restored and renewed marriage. Maybe the call to forgiveness. Maybe a call to, for, to missions. Six, they reveled in unrighteousness. They reveled in unrighteousness. Psalm 106, 28. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. So I believe that this is a, the end result of idolatry. It is the end result of giving yourself fully to something other than 
God. It is outright wickedness and evil. It is doing something wholly wrong, damaging, and unhealthy. It is condoning, taking part in something not just outside of God's plan for you, but something that is actively opposed to it. And we have to ask ourselves, does this ever describe us? Does it describe you? Do you ever get into real wickedness with your eyes, with your mind, with your body, with your speech? Seven. They brought others down with them. They brought others down with them. Psalm 106, 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Sin is like radiation. It penetrates and then shoots out. It affects us, but not just us, never just us. It affects, of course, us, but then it goes out to everyone around us. When the people were thirsty, complaining to Moses, Moses sinned. God punished him and did not let him into the promised land. But this is not actually about him, the psalm. This is about the Israelites. They are culpable. They provoked Moses. In their sin, they brought others down with them. Does that ever describe you? Describes me. Does your anger or judgmentalism bring others down with you? Does your lack of forgiveness hurt those around you? Do the sins that you sow in the secret hurt your family, your friends, your work, your marriage? Last one. Or the last one, eight, they disobeyed. They disobeyed. Psalm 106, 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. I think it's fascinating how this section ends. What's described here is not just one moment, but many moments. Many moments over many years, the people failed to destroy the Canaanite nation as they were commanded to do. It was a long time of sin and unfaithfulness. And the more that they sinned and disobeyed, the more they became like other nations. The more they rejected God's commands, the more they became like the world. Does this describe us? Does this describe you? Is there a way you are disobeying God right now? Do you stand for justice apart from those at work? Do you parent your kids with kindness and mercy and discipline, unlike those in the world? Do you die for your spouse? Do you tell others about Christ? Eight sins. Eight sins. Eight ways you reject God as Lord. We are made to do what is right, but we do not do it. And why is that? Why is that? Third point, because we are unable to do what is right. We are unable to do what is right. Of course, the Israelites are not the only actors in this story. God is there too, and it's fascinating how he responds to them. Like any good father, he will try to change them. He longs for them to live as they were created. And so he will respond to these eight sins in eight different ways, a myriad of ways. He will be merciful. He will punish them. 
He will allow others to intercede on their behalf. The question though, I want you to think about as we go through this, is will it work? Will his punishment, mercies, intercessions work? Will they be saved? Will they be changed? Will they live, the people, as they were always created? We're going to go through these much faster. Eight sins, eight responses from God. First, when the Israelites run from the Pharaoh and they get to the Red Sea, they cry out in unbelief. What does God do? Does he just leave them there to die? No, he saves them. He saves them. He is merciful to them, even though they did not deserve it. Did God's mercy change the Israelites? Second, when the people got, that, got angry at God that he did not provide for them, what did he do? It says that he gave them a wasting disease. Probably they lost a lot of weight. And so what he's doing is he's punishing them. He's punishing them by making them sick. Did that punishment change the Israelites? Third, when the Israelites became jealous of Moses and Aaron, it says that God punished them by swallowing up some of their tribes and sending fire on others. Pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. Did that brutal punishment change the Israelites? Fourth, people made the calf, right? The golden idol. God came down in a fury and he said that he would destroy them completely. And then something fascinating happens. Moses comes in. Moses stands before the people of God and he says this, Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses' chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And so Moses risks his life to save them and it works. God says, I will not destroy them because you have asked me. Does that sacrificial action and mercy of God change the Israelites? Fifth, when the people believed, disbelieved God's promise about the promised land, he sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. He made them to wander, to suffer. Did those 40 years in the desert change the Israelites? Sixth, when the people did terrible and blasphemous things, they binded themselves, they bound themselves to other gods. We learn that they were spared by another intervention. Psalm 106.30. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. They were going to be killed and he comes and intervenes and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Phinehas's prayer for the people stayed God's hand. Why? Because his actions, his prayers were counted to him as righteousness. In other words, that God gives Phineas righteousness, a goodness that spares all of the people. When they see this, when they see the sacrifice and righteousness, does it change the Israelites? Seventh, when they provoke Moses at Meribah, Moses sins and is punished by God. He lets the people see the consequences of their sin. Their leader cannot go with them into the promised land. Does this change them? And then finally, they disobey God by refusing to destroy the nation of Canaan. And it says God responded this way. 106.40 Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their 
power. God allows the people to fall. He allows them to live out the consequences of their actions. Eight sins, eight responses from God where the Israelites changed. Now remember that the Psalms are songs, right? This is a worship book. And so they would have sung these, recited these in their worship services. Think about singing that at the top of your lungs with a few hundred or 10,000 people. Think about singing Israel's sins and God's faithful intercessions. And then realizing as you're singing that none of it worked. That the people had failed, were failing, and would fail again. Why recount this sin, this wickedness, this evil? Why remind themselves of how, that, how they failed to believe in God despite his attempted attempts to repeat him, his repeated attempts to save them? Now, even if they do not know the answer or did not know the answer, we do. They had an idea. The psalmist had an idea. But we know now. We know that this mystery has been uncovered. We recount our sins and our inability to do what is right to understand the most important thing in the world. We need a savior. And Superman returns. Lois Lane is annoyed at the presence of Superman in the world. She does not think that what he provides is necessary. She writes that in the newspaper. And then she says to him when he confronts her about this, the world doesn't need a savior and neither do I. Friends, that is the default mode, the default belief of the human heart. We do not believe that we are deeply, unchangeably sinful. And we do not believe that the main problem with the world is us. And so, of course, we do not believe that we need a savior, a savior to save us from sin and then save us to life. We, apart from a savior, are unable to do what we are made for, what we are created for. And so we say this last thing. We must be made able to do what is right. Made able to do what is right. Now, we might expect that this psalm would end just with God abandoning his people, giving up on them. But he doesn't. He hears their cries for mercy, and again, he saves them. Psalm 106, 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Later when Superman returns, Superman says to Lois Lane, I saw what you wrote about the world not needing a savior. But listen, every day I hear people crying for one. That's a movie. That's a movie. Psalm 106 is not. It is history. It is his story, God's story story and God's story will end when his people his created and chosen people are saved to everlasting joy and happiness in him but as we've said nothing works 
Nothing rouses us, nothing, not laws, not punishments, not God's temporal mercies, and not even the intercession of sacrificial humans. Nothing could change our hearts, it turns out, because we are dead. We are dead apart from being raised to new life. And so someone had to come. Someone had to come and complete our full atonement and give us complete resurrection. And so God would come into our darkness and take on our flesh. And he, the true and better Moses, would walk in perfect obedience and then be offered up as a sacrifice of atonement for all of our sins. And he, the true and better Phineas, would be raised three days later, conquering sin and death and giving us life. Do you understand that Jesus Christ gave us his life because we could not give him ours? He gave us his life because we could not give him ours. Do you know what that does? Do you know what happens when we fully admit our sin and rely on Jesus as Savior? We are made able to do what is right. Hear that again. We are made able to do what is right by the mercy, by the righteousness, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now when we see the beauty, the love of, of, and joy of God in Christ for us, when we trust on his life for ours, our hearts are revived. We go from death to life and our eyes are opened. Our breath is restored and we begin to respond to the only thing that will change us, his grace. His free, unmerited grace. And the more that we see what he has done for us, the more we go from unbelief to belief. The more we see what he has done for us, the more we go to worshiping, not idols, but worshiping God. The more we see his grace, his love for us at the cross. We go from rejecting his commands to obeying them with joy. We are created for his grace, to live in it, to celebrate it, to work out of it, to walk in it. Listen to the final prayer of Psalm 106:47. I believe that it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. That's it. That is our prayer, that we be saved, that we be resurrected, to see him and hear him and praise him and walk in obedience. That is the happy life. That is what we are made for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us now? Help us now to understand what we need to understand. On the one hand, I pray that as uh, we encounter the eight lists of sins, that we would know, that we would um, see what is inside of our hearts. Maybe things that we do not even know. That they would be exposed and that we'd be convicted. 
But then, Lord, just as quickly, I pray that we would understand that we cannot solve our ails, our problems, our sins by trying to do better. We cannot do better. We cannot walk unless you are walking with us first. And so I pray that we would understand your grace, that you died even though we didn't deserve it, that you gave your life even though we did not want it. You gave your life to us when we could not give you ours. Help us to put those things together so that we would walk in obedience and holiness. That is what we need. That is what our families need. That is what our church needs. That is what the world needs. Help us to do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.